a few minutes passed and we got a call um, from the opera house saying that they'd found a package and things were starting to develop quite quickly around, you know, there were possible bombs right across the city and it became quite a big story very fast. Um, you know, we'd heard that the cafe was being held hostage. We didn't realise it was, it was the Lint Cafe at that time. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, everyone, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, our guest is Tess Salmon. Now, Tess is an experienced communications professional who is currently the General Manager of External Affairs and Communication at Western Sydney Airport, and she was also the founder and director of Orb Communications. Now, Tess doesn't know this, but we have a shared history. She began her career at Radio 2UE in Sydney, just as I did, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But since working for 2UE, Tess has gone on to a great career where she is, like many of our guests here on GovComs, really gone across the communications function where she's taken on speech writing, stakeholder management, media engagement, crisis communication, key message development, and really everything that goes to being a communications professional. Uh, not only has she worked as a journalist, newsreader, editor, writer, producer, as many of us has, she was also the Director of Media and Communications to the Deputy Premier or the former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, Troy Grant, and also the former New South Wales Police and Emergency Services Minister, Michael Gallagher. Now, in fact, she was also the only political advisor who remained with the Deputy Premier at the State Crisis Centre during the infamous Martin Place siege. And I will certainly like to talk to Tess about that today. But she currently lives in Sydney, Australia and works in Sydney, Australia, where she joins us today. So Tess, thanks very much for joining us on GovComs. Thank you, David, for that warm welcome. Um, let's go back to 2UE. Mm. Um, I was there obviously uh, a few more years uh, earlier uh, than you, but uh, and, and I love your story because it was a pretty similar to mine as well because I think when you're young and keen and enthusiastic, you're sort of drawn to those newsroom environments. And my career started in sport where I worked with uh, Andrew Voss and, and Andrew Moore working for Ray Hadley in 2UE Sport. And you came on board to work as a producer with, with Stan Zamanik. But what was it that drew you into the, the world of radio? Look, I've always loved storytelling. In fact, my mother would describe me as an ambulance chaser from the time that I was a young child. I would hear sirens and I'd ask her to follow because I was always interested in what was at the other end. Um, so I was always drawn to that, uh, you know, storytelling, but also with radio, the immediacy of it, being able to tell a story then and there, you know, you're not having to wait till the evening news. Uh, you could tell five different stories in the one day from a range of topics. And I, I loved that about radio. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I was also in that role as a producer after I left 2UE. I went across to 5DN in Adelaide. And being that producer for radio programs where 
the thrill of the chase where you're looking for the talent and you're trying to convince people to come onto the program because you want to be not only first, but you want to get the opportunity to to ask the questions. It's it's a great thrill, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, I, I joke with my friends even now that I've seen more gutters in Sydney than I have, you know, nightclubs. But it's true. You know, you spend a lot of your time um, chasing stories and those, you know, human interest stories and connecting with people in what is often one of the worst days of their lives. And it's, it's really profound found, um, you know, sometimes it feels really intrusive to, to be part of that, but it's really profound to also be able to tell those stories. And so curiosity is is clearly, you know, a key part of, of your success. But what else would you put down um, to your success? What are your other qualities that have helped you to be, uh, well, to help you to have earned the right to, to have the, the opportunities that you've, that you've had? It's a really interesting question, David. Look, I think... Um, instinct is is played a really big part in my career I've always taken opportunities not for particular roles or for money or for anything like that but what always felt right and I think a large part of being a journalist is trusting your instinct and um, I certainly adopt that now in, in my career in terms of you know strategic communications and media advising um, instinct and I think building relationships um, you know I, I like to think that I'm a people person and I enjoy relationships with people, um, building those foundations and instilling trust in people has been really important for me. So what advice do you have for people in terms of the best ways to go about building those trusted relationships so that you can become that trusted advisor as, as you have, not only in your current role there at Western Sydney Airport, but certainly working with senior politicians because they do rely on their media advisors for advice. Yeah, that's right. Look, I think um, I've always adopted the premise to tell people what they know and what they're going to find out. And I think that's really important. Honesty is, without wanting to go into the cliche, honesty is the best policy. And I think building foundations, um, building relationships on a foundation of trust and open and honest conversations, sometimes they're hard conversations and you have to walk towards that tension. But I think when you are building a relationship, you want to start on the right grounds and that instills trust in people so that when you do have to have um, tough conversations or you need to negotiate certain outcomes, that trust is there and you already know that, or they know that you're going to do the right thing by them. But that takes a bit of courage, doesn't it? That you, you know, bad news doesn't age well. Um, You do learn that over time. But how do you build that skill as you came through your career? What what were the things that taught you that, you know, if it's, you've got to get it out, you've got to get it in front of people as quickly as possible? Yeah, look, I think um, being, I think success comes with intention. And I think being deliberate about the way you communicate with people has been really important for me in my career. I think, um, you know, drawing on your assets, being a people person or whatever skills that you think you have in common ground with with these people you're trying to build relationships with. And, you know, my stakeholders now at Western Sydney Airport are so diverse. You know, they're community members, they're government, they're um, agencies, they are people who might want to invest, um, you know, in commercial opportunities at the airport. They are my own team. They're the executives. So being able to tailor your communication to those audiences and and how they need to receive a message more so than what you need to put out. Mm. So that's an interesting point, isn't it, around understanding your audience and, and tailoring your message. How, what is your process that you go through in order to understand what those different needs are 
um, such that you can give people the information that they that they need to know in the form um, that they prefer it. Because interestingly, people are different, aren't they? That they they like to receive information in different ways. Some people like to receive uh, briefs and extended briefs, and they want all of the information. Other people just want you know a quick verbal. Some people like visual. So, what's your process in in trying to understand the best way to be most effective in engaging with those audiences and stakeholders? I think it comes down to those relationships and understanding people, as you said, David. I think we, um, particularly in government areas, we're so quick to have our key messages that we need to put out and we forget to take a step back and actually think of who we're communicating that to. And, you know, as you say, people receive messages differently and your intent um, can be really clear, but if it's not clear in the way that someone understands it, it's not going to cut through. So I think being able to understand how, and you know, this is really important as a manager, being able to understand how each individual in my team needs to understand and needs to receive a message in order to be, you know, comfortable and, and competent at their job. Um, likewise, with you know, briefing the executive, my CEO receives messages very differently to my CFO, and being able to tailor that communication and understand what it is that they need. So listen, your journey from the the radio newsroom into politics, it's a it's a fairly well-trodden path, isn't it? That there are many, particularly radio journalists, I find, end up working in politics. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about that. What what was it that sort of led you, you know, to move from journalism into the advising world? It was really opportunity. I, um, I'd been in radio for six years. I loved what I did. I loved reporting. I loved the thrill of the chase. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to read the news. Um, and at that time, we were approaching the New South Wales state election in 2011. Um, and I was approached. I had, you know, again, comes back to relationships. I had built relationships with the then opposition's um, media team uh, through, you know, natural engagement across different stories and, and um, policy that they were putting out. And I, um, I was offered an opportunity to come across to government if they won the election, and they did. And um, I surprised myself in how quickly I handed over my resignation letter, to be honest. It, um, <laughs> I, I, I loved radio and I thought I'd be a journalist for life, but um, the day that that job was offered to me, I, I ran into 2UE, into the um, news director's office, and, he, and I wasn't meant to be on until later that afternoon to read the evening news. And he said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm here to resign. And I was so excited about it. He sort of said, that's not really the reaction I was hoping for. But anyway, here we are. Um, Look, it was a leap of faith. And I always thought radio would be there if I wanted to go back. And sadly, as you know, 2UE is no longer there. And radio has changed fundamentally in the last decade. Um, But, you know, I, I still have a love for journalism, I think you know. Once a journalist, always a journalist. But um, yeah, it was it was a it was an opportunity that I seized, and I have never regretted it. What what was what what excited you on that particular day? What you know? What was it that you felt that you that, that was going to that was so attractive to that opportunity? I think. Look, to be honest, it, it did come down to people. I um I when I thought when I sat back and thought about which minister I would like to work for, I had two in mind. One of them was Mike Gallagher. Um, I always found him very impressive as an opposition spokesperson, and he um he instilled a great uh, energy um throughout our conversation when when I was interviewing for the role and um. 
I'd been a crime reporter most of my career and he had the police and emergency services portfolio and, and that excited me to see it from the other side, to to not only be reporting on it but to see it, you know, on that policy side and to affect change that would actually change people's lives. Yeah. I think that is the, the point, isn't it? Is because particularly when you're in government, you are in a position to make decisions or to support decisions, policy decisions that have a real impact in the community. So I'm sure that was a big part of that influence that, that would have been a lot of fun. Having, you know, journalism is a spectator sport in many ways, but once you move into politics, you're actually starting to affect and, and make change. Absolutely. I think, you know, at the heart of it, it's all about stories and, you know, journalism, you're telling a story um, and in policy you are, I guess, shaping that story. And I think that really uh, attracted me to be able to, to make decisions and be part of a broader community that would um, would change people's lives. So once you, you were in politics, what was the differences that you left behind from your journalism career to those that you experienced uh, inside the inside a, a political a governing party a, a government ruling in the day. Yeah, look, it, it it was interesting. It took me a good twelve months to really shift my way of thinking. I think as a journalist, your instinct <laughs> is to seek out the truth, and uh, in politics, that's not so much the case. Not the that they're you know not truthful, but there's a different way of operating. And I think you know having to put that side of me. I remember once I was at a press conference with uh, Mike Gallagher and I was standing behind the cameras and people were throwing questions at him and and I, without even thinking, almost went to ask him a question and I had to really, you know, bite my tongue and think, oh, that's not my job anymore. No, not appropriate to ask him a controversial question. You might not survive the day. So, yeah, it really took a while to shift my thinking around, you know, a different kind of output of, of the content. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I have sat in those meetings where former journalists start to become political advisors and you can see them, you know, when the when the conversations are taking place that they previously weren't uh, able to listen to, they can hear, oh, wow, that's mm. a good story. That's a good story. So how did you then use the skills that you applied as a journalist to start to, you know, shape the narrative of, of, of Mike Gallagher? Yeah, look, I think... Um understanding, again, the audience, you know, being able to look at a piece of policy and pull out the key facts, the things that would resonate, you know, with the community and resonate with news uh, rooms and journalists. Um, I think that was part of the process was being able to say, okay, well, there's all this wishy-washy policy here that doesn't mean anything to anyone. It's important for the process. But in terms of communicating the core message of what this policy is going to do, pulling out those facts. And I think having that journalistic background and understanding what it is that, you know, actually makes news really helped with that. And to be a good advisor in that political role, bringing those journalism skills with you and that uh, experience that you had, how did you, how did you become a good advisor? How did you become an effective advisor? You said that it took you probably 12 months to probably settle into the role, but ultimately what were the qualities that you brought to the job that made you such a success? I think I'd go back to instinct as well. Um, instinct really just having an understanding of what your skills are. I really, it's it's really hard one to describe and people would often ask me, what is it that you do? And it's really hard to say, this is what I do because every day is different. Um, you know, it's just, it's almost comes 
becomes second nature. I just, much like journalism, you know, I remember um, sitting in a courtroom and, you know, for a whole day throughout a trial as, as a journalist and I went back to my newsroom, I pulled out a grab, um, the, the other, the opposition radio network pulled out the same grab and a friend of mine said to me that night, how do you know? which is the grab to put on the news. How do you know? Like, what is it that resonates with you? And it's just instinct. You just know what it is that's going to be newsworthy and and it happens often and you often see the same networks running the same grab and it's it's just that it's the money grab, it's the news grab. And I think that's it's similar in in advising that you you draw on your instincts to to find what is going to resonate with people. Now, I'm really interested if you could tell us the story of the Martin Place siege, because again, that is, uh, you know, a huge story, um, certainly in Australia, and you were involved um, with the Deputy Premier there at the State Crisis Centre. So perhaps maybe start us again as a great storyteller, take us back to that day, if if you would, and sure. what unfolded during that day and what your role was in, in helping to manage that uh, that crisis. Sure. Look, it was a, um, it's almost a blur of a day in, in some respects, although I, I remember um, great detail about it. We, uh, we were in the office um, in Martin Place, so just opposite Martin Place from um, where the cafe was. Um, we, and the first instinct we got or the first um, notice that we got was that there were a lot of police cars uh, on Elizabeth Street and when we thought there must have been a, an accident or a police operation, we didn't think too much of it. Um, a few minutes passed and we got a call um, from the Opera House saying that they'd found a package and things were starting to develop quite quickly around, you know, there were possible bombs right across the city and it became quite a big story very fast. Um, you know, we'd heard that the cafe was being held hostage. We didn't realise it was it was the Lint Cafe at that time and as the, the day progressed, our building went into lockdown um, and... We uh, we were kind of all huddled in there. So and you then... weren't up in the you weren't up in the Parliament building as such. You were at no. the at the offices, the state government offices, which are nearby. But you were in the offices, not up in the Parliament building. That's right. We we're in the offices, which are just uh-huh. above Channel Seven. Right. Okay. Yep. Which is very close to where, in fact, the Lint Cafe was. That's right. We could see the Lint Cafe from one of the offices, um, from the Deputy Premier's office. Uh, he had a corner office and you could see it, uh, see right into the cafe from there. So we, um, at a point in time, the building was opened and people were allowed to leave. And I, like my colleagues, went to pick up my bag and exit um, quite quickly from the city. There'd been a huge exodus from the city already by that stage. And we, um, my, I got a tap on the shoulder from my chief of staff and the, the deputy premier who, who asked me to stay. And my role at the time was director of communications and, and I felt it was part of my duty and my role to, to stay if he asked. Um, much to my mother's great distress, she uh, was quite hysterical on the phone telling me to leave um, because, you know, it was a very volatile situation and we just didn't know what was going to happen. So, not long after that, we were in the Premier's office with the people who remained in the building, which weren't many. There was about seven of us uh, from memory. We went into the Premier's office. short time later, we were taken up to Parliament. So we were uh, walked by police, um, most of them in plain clothes with just their firearms and a vest. Uh, we were walked up to Parliament House and, and we sat there for some time. And then not long after that, it must have been by this stage around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we were um, requested at the State Crisis Centre, which is in a secret location and um, 
I had had the privilege of being there previously with uh, the former police minister, so I knew where it was, and we were taken in, in vehicles um, to this secret location, and that's where I spent the rest of the day and the evening and the next morning. And it was a really um, confronting situation to be in where you sat uh, there, you know, hour after hour, briefing after briefing, hearing what was uh, being planned in terms of police operation, in terms of, you know, getting people out of the city. The um, You know, you had every minister there from the health minister, transport minister, a multicultural minister, um, lots of police were in that building and it was, you know, fascinating to watch, terrifying at the same time, but uh, an experience I'll never forget. So the the police media, I imagine, were taking the vast bulk of the calls in terms of the mm-hmm. what's happening next, what's happening next, keeping the journalists and one could only imagine um, the volume of calls that they would have been uh, taking at that time. So was your role then to be more strategic around this and try to understand and and so what sort of advice then were you giving in that role? Look it it wasn't so much an advising role at that stage on that day I think it became more a support role Um, I was there to support the Deputy Premier in anything that he felt he needed um, to do and be part of. He didn't have a um, a formal role as the Deputy Premier at that time. He wasn't yet the Police Minister, but as, you know, the second most senior person in government and a former police officer himself, he felt a duty to to the citizens of New South Wales to be part of of what was happening that day. So my role was really um, to advise him about, you know, what, you know, in terms of messaging, there wasn't a great deal, but it was to, it was to be a support for him in, in terms of what he, he was thinking and, and, and letting him process that. What did, on that day, because again, crisis communications is a, is a term thrown around very loosely, and this indeed, the, the story you're telling is in, in fact a, a genuine crisis um, where mm-hmm. people's lives were lost. Um, what did you learn about crisis communications that that day or through that that incident? And what did you learn about yourself through that period? Look, I think um, in terms of crisis communications, I think I really learnt the importance of going out early, being able to communicate quickly, um, being calm. I think it's so fundamental when, and in fact, part of that day we uh, when our building was opened up, we had a very you know, shaky, panicked voice come over the building intercom to say, you know, the building's now open, you can leave. And that instilled so much, you know, fear into everybody. Um, and I think had that message been received by a calm, measured tone, then it would have been a much calmer exodus out of the building. Um, so I think, you know, having a calm presence in crisis and instilling confidence in people, people want to know that those in charge um, have got the situation under control, even if it is not yet under control, as we know the lint siege wasn't for some time. But in terms of, you know, their their risk, they want to know that they, they're, being look, they're being looked after. So, uh, you know, going out early and going out often as well. And, um, and, and it, it also seems to me also through the story that you, you also were – almost sitting there listening, taking it in and waiting to be asked before you were providing any sort of advice. I can imagine that there are a lot of voices in the room, um, people assessing the different types of information, but it sounds to me that you were you, you were waiting to be asked before you were offering your, your views. Absolutely. And I think in a room like that, in a situation like that, you really do play a backseat role. You, you're you there to be seen, not heard in many respects and only when 
called upon or when there is something that you really feel is gnawing at you that needs to be said. Um, I certainly, my advice was, you know, directed to to my boss at the time and, and it wasn't really for the broader consumption of the room. Um, there were plenty of advisors in that room from the Premier's office, from, you know, the police media unit um, and various other ministers. So there was a lot of, you know, very talented, skilled people in that room to provide advice um, as it was needed. But certainly my advice was more on a, I guess, a personal level to, to my boss. Yeah. So from there, um, out of politics into running your own business, what was the story there that you, again, it sounds like you'd learnt everything that you felt that you were going to learn and it was time for your next adventure? Yeah, look, politics is exhausting. Um, I I loved my time in New South Wales. I got to work for two of the best politicians uh, in in terms of both their portfolios and the people that they were. I seem to have um, trailed my career working with police. Um, you know, both Mike Gallagher and Troy Grant were both former police officers, so I really have a, a thread of you know law and order through through my career. But I, uh, I t- made a decision to step out of it and do something different. I think you, when you're exposed to that much, um, you know, trauma every day through various sit reps and things, um, it, it does take a toll on you personally. I also went through an election campaign as the head of his communications um, and, you know, it, it takes a toll. So yeah, It's exhausting. I, it is. It's exhausting. I, so I mm. stepped out of it um, launched my own business, had great success with it, absolutely loved doing it and, and, you know, could see myself doing it for the next 20 years. But then I got a phone call um, telling me that I should apply for a role with the New South Wales Police Force uh, for the new incoming uh, police commissioner and it was just an opportunity too good to to turn down and, and, and so then I spent the next two years working for New South Wales Police. And now you're at Western Sydney Airport, which is going to be... You know, after so many, many, many years, and again, we have an international audience, but just to let them know, uh, Sydney has one airport and it is right in the middle of where lots of people live. And so for years and years and years in Australia, there's been a debate, or yeah, because it is, you know, the major gateway for people coming into Australia. But there is a second Sydney airport being built in Western Sydney. And that's the job that you've got now is to start to build this, you know, incredible piece of of uh, infrastructure. So this is almost a blank sheet of paper. Um, Away from crime, you can now probably uh, uh, think a little bit more longer term, I suppose. As you you mentioned, you alluded to earlier on, there are huge numbers of stakeholders uh, in this particular project, but this must be... uh, this must be a, a welcome change and really an opportunity to to really set set something up that will have a massive impact on um, on Australia for many years to come. Absolutely, David. I think, um, you know, I was very fortunate when I left police. I had a stepping stone from there into the Deputy Prime Minister's office, who is the Minister for uh, Infrastructure. And that really gave me a bit of a buzz and a love for, you know, construction and and development and building things that, you know, will affect change for people. And um, I, I landed Pardon, pardon the pun here at Western <laughs> Sydney Airport, and um, wheels it is, down. <laughs> wheels down, exactly. <laughs> it is an incredibly busy, and, and and as you say, it is um it is a blank page. We uh, we started as a greenfield airport. Uh, the the location had been earmarked for some thirty years, so there'd been no development on the site, and um, you know we we currently in the middle of our earth moving 
uh, phase of the construction, having just moved uh, almost half, or, or just over half, sorry, of the 25 million cubic metres of earth across the 1,780 hectare site. So it's huge. To put that into perspective, it's going to be the equivalent of 10,000 Olympic swimming pools of dirt, um, and the site is three times the size of Sydney Olympic Park. So it, it's mammoth, and you can't really get a full appreciation for how big it is until you actually step out here. And I'm fortunate today I'm uh, overlooking the beautiful glass windows, looking at the site, watching the 260 vehicles buzzing back and forth, moving moving that earth around the site. So it's an, an awesome project to work on. So what what's first for you now? It, it sounds to me that you, you're very much in that listening phase, that there you've got lots of people who've got lots of points of view. Um, you're in the very, very early stages of it. So what's your priority? Yeah, so we look, we... Um our priority, I suppose, is to create awareness of the airport. Um, you know, there are still some people who are not aware that it's coming at the end of 2026. We will be opening for um, full service domestic international passenger services as well as air cargo. And, you know, in time, the airport will grow over stages and over decades and it will become the largest gateway to Australia. So, I guess our focus at the moment is creating that awareness in the community, building those relationships. We are, you know, we are into construction. We will award our terminal construction mid this year um, and then that will begin at the end of the year. And it's it's making, um, you know, th- this is really a, a linchpin for this, this region. Western Sydney Airport will, you know, create so much wealth and opportunity and, and change generations. I mean, there are people... Uh, and, you know, I, I hope you can hear the passion in my voice because I, I really feel this is such an exciting project. But there are people who haven't even been born yet who are going to benefit from this airport in creating a city uh, around it with the Aerotropolis, which is, of course, driven by the New South Wales government. There will be jobs where people won't have to travel an hour and a half into the CBD, um, you know, skilled employment opportunities. And I think that is so fundamental for a global city like Sydney. Well, Tess, best of luck with that. And I certainly look forward to understanding this. And this might be a nice one for us to um, come back to over um, different time periods to understand just exactly, you know, this case study of building an airport and, and being the communications director of this particular project. How do you, you know, communicate with the drivers of those 260 vehicles who are moving, you know, today? What are their needs? How are you going to tell that story? And then, you know, peeling back this, you know, very complex onion and and how do you work through it? So I look forward maybe in the um, months and years ahead to come back and uh, and have a conversation, uh, have a case study, a live case study as we seek to understand what is the role of the communicator in really building this together. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your experience with us today. And it's wonderful to see uh, fellow alumni from 2UE (laughs) doing so wonderfully well. And congratulations on uh, all your successes so far. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, David. What a great conversation with a very talented executive. And don't you love the way that Tess has essentially just followed her nose and followed her in- instinct from opportunity to opportunity to opportunity, being thoughtful um, through each of those uh, opportunities, but but being so competent, obviously, in what she was able to do, getting those opportunities. But lots of wisdom there in that conversation with Tess today. And best of luck to her and the team. 
at Western Sydney Airport with that wonderful project ahead of them. Thank you, audience, for coming back once again. Very grateful for you to do that. If you do see the social media promotion of the GovComs uh, network, please um, pass it on, recommend a review of the podcast. Always helps as well. So, uh, again, thank you for your interest and your attention. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But at the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.